This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I will be your host today. Joining me today is not Will Bushman. Will Bushman is afraid of COVID, and I have been diagnosed with COVID, and my wife is around me all the time, so she's resigned herself to the fact that she's getting COVID. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Glad to be here. If I don't have COVID yet, I will after sharing a microphone. In yeah, that's right. Small, small closet. Yeah, we're, we're in our closet with a shared microphone, which is a little bit different just because I am semi-quarantined today, but we are trucking along. We're going to continue in the study of Exodus, and we're coming up on one of the most important passages in the Torah today. Um, which is Exodus 3. And so if you remember last week, where we ended was God who um, had heard the cries of his people. We know that Moses killed the Egyptian. He fled away from Egypt because his attempt to lead kind of a revolution to, to free the Hebrews failed. They did not see him as their deliverer. And so he ran away. He spent 40 years off in the wilderness of Sinai as a shepherd for his father-in-law Jethro. And at the end of it, we're told that God heard the cries of his people and that he saw them and their sufferings. And we're going to see a little bit more of that today. Uh, but in chapter three, we now get the, the time when God comes to Moses and calls him into ministry. Uh, and some really, really profound truths come out of this passage about who God is. I'm looking forward to hearing about this and talking about this, um, especially as I think about this passage, I think about the timing of everything. It's been, what, 400 years since the Israelites first were into kind of falling into slavery. And I know that you guys talked about this already, but the fact that God, he didn't just hear it just yesterday. He's heard this a long time ago, but now is the time that he has chosen to bring his deliverance and to bring his deliverer. And so I look forward to working through this with you. Yeah, so God has ordained this. Like when he talked to Abraham hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, he had told him it was going to be four centuries. And so it's like the the sand is slipping through the hourglass, and now it is time for God to move. And verse one, it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law. And this is the way that the Hebrew structured there, it's like this is perpetual. He's been doing this a while. This is now his job. He is a shepherd for his father-in-law. Jethro, the priest of Midian. And as we talked about last time, the Midianites came out of the line of Abraham through his second wife, Keturah. So they know the promise of, promises of God given to Abraham. They would have been circumcised if they had kept that tradition. Um, and so Jethro knows Moses' God. And it said, as he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And so just like Jethro has two names, <laughs> Horeb also has two names, and you're probably more familiar with the name Sinai, but both of them have interesting meanings. Uh, Horeb actually means something along the lines of de desolation, desert, wilderness, nothing there, no life, 
that's kind of the connotation of it. And Sinai actually comes from, I think, uh, there's debate over this, mm-hmm. but Sinai, we believe, comes from the root senet, which is where uh, the Hebrew word for thorns, a uh, thorn bush, brambles is the idea. And so you get this idea of the terrain just by those names, desolate, brambles. There's not a lot of life or greenery. It's, it's a rough place to be. I was noticing in the NIV where I started reading the passage that it says that he was taken around to the far side of the wilderness. So it sounds like it was a little bit of a journey away from wherever he was used to being. Is that just a shepherd thing where you're just going to go hit a bunch of different areas? Or what do you think drew him away to go into that area? Any ideas on that? Yeah, I don't know. The shepherds back in the days of of Abraham, like when Joseph is sent to check on his brothers, you know, it's, it's like 30 miles away. And so shepherds would make these rounds depending on, you know, the terrain, where things are green, flows of water, uh, anything like that. And so the fact that Moses is a long way, it's like he's he's going with the flocks, I think. Just seems like a really miserable way to tend sheep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would Wandering be. around the wilderness, looking for a little bit of water here and there and brush here and there. Yeah, and so when the text introduces us to the mountain of God, we don't know, had this had a name, was there something significant about it beforehand, or is it telling us this is going to be the mountain of God? And so right out of the gates, it's telling you there's something really special about this mountain, and when you get to Exodus chapter 20, 17 chapters from now, we see that this is the very same mountain where Moses will get the Ten Commandments. Um, Mount Sinai will be a very, very important place in the history of the people of God. Okay. And so it says the angel of the Lord, and we've talked about this before in Genesis, the angel of the Lord is God. Like we we know that for sure. Um, and and points where Jacob is having a conversation with the angel of the Lord and, and then it says God spoke. So we know it's it's treated as equivalent and all through the scriptures. And so when it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame um, this is talking about God himself, and there's there's very little debate over that. But this is really significant for a lot of reasons. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. It and, does seem like a strange sight, doesn't it? And kind of a random place to show up. Yeah, oh, totally. This would have been pretty wild. To have, it's not very, very uncommon for a bush to catch fire. It's less common for a bush to catch fire in a desert because usually what sets it on fire is, you know, dew or something like that usually magnifies the sun. Like, you know how you take a magnifying glass? Okay. So it needs something to to spark a fire or to concentrate the ray of the sun. I'm picturing lightning, like ba-bam. Or lightning, yeah. But you don't have storms in a desert. You don't have water that's going to magnify a a sun ray to cause fire. You have nothing like that that's going to cause it. But we do see that there are fires out in the desert, but they're rare. So Moses, you know, having done this for 40 years, has probably seen some spontaneous fires in his day. But what he has never seen is a bush that's on fire that's not being consumed. Yeah, right. So this this is altogether weird. And God gives us this sign because it's, in a sense, it's emblematic of who he is. <laughs> in this case, what makes what makes it so weird that the fire is blazing and yet the bush is not being consumed 
is that violates every law of of fire <laughs> that mm. we know. Like right. fire has to have fuel to burn. It needs oxygen. It needs wood. It needs something to consume in order to exist, right? Right. And this time, you're seeing a fire that's burning that doesn't need fuel. It doesn't need a cause. It's not dependent on anything else for its existence. It's just burning. Hmm. It All by itself, it's, it's the aseity of God, which means that he's not dependent on anything else for his existence. He exists all by himself. And Moses is looking at this going, why is that thing not burning up? Hmm. Um, well, he's the fire that needs no fuel. <laughs> you know, he's... He's self-causing, and so there's there's a whole lot going on here, but that's one of the things that's pretty cool. Why do you think fire? Like, what does fire have to do with God? Well, I don't – that's a good question. You know, fire is a source of life. It's a sort of light. Um, it's all-consuming. It's dangerous in one sense. It, it when, If it's correctly used or, or employed, it, it brings all kinds of really wonderful things. But right. if you if you stand on the wrong side of fire, right. it will destroy you. Um, God calls himself an all-consuming fire in other places. When he comes down on Mount Sinai later, he comes with fire. And so there's something about the holiness of God that when it is seen by other people, mm-hmm. It is burning. Even the seraphim, which are a brand of angels that surround God, the name seraph comes from burning ones. Hmm. Um, That's literally what that means, seraphim. So there's something about the presence of God where there's a glorious kind of fire that you always see. Hmm. I'm surprised that it was something Moses could even look at. If you think about the idea of people encountering God, you know, people will um, hide their faces, which I think he does a little bit later, but that that he would set up a fire that is strange, but at that moment, at least, it's not terrifying. It's not overwhelming. It's not get me the way, get me away from this. It is drawing him in kind of as a a signal of something interesting that's happening. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he's looking at it going, this is really, really weird. I mean, it's definitely catching his attention. And then when he gets close, he sees this isn't natural. Like there's something supernatural about this. And and the fact that God, you know, the word here, you know, I talked about what Sinai means and where that comes from, the Hebrew word is Sinek. And well, that's the word that you find here behind that word bush. When it says that he appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the middle of a bush, well, the word there in the Hebrew is Sinek, and it literally means a bramble bush. It's a thorn bush. And so now think about that, that you not only have the supernatural, But you have God who's coming and appearing to Moses in the middle Mm -hmm. of a thorn bush. Now, I want to pause there for a moment because if you're you're chronologically looking at Scripture, where's the first time you encounter thorns? Well, it would be in the garden, right, when they have the curses put on them? That's it. So, I mean, that's the one physical manifestation of the fall that you find in Genesis 3 where God comes to Adam and... And he says, because you've rebelled against me, I am going to make the ground rebel against you, is essentially what happens. So it's going to grow, he says, it's going to grow thorns and thistles for you. It's going to be hard to work. And so now, the one physical manifestation of the curse, which is thorns, now you have God coming down to his people that are in the midst of suffering, right? And remember how chapter 2 closed. It closed with God saying, that he knows what they're going through. And and that's kind of an experiential knowledge, and God knew their pain. And so the first thing that he reveals to Moses 
is he's a God that's come to take up residence in the midst of the symbol of the fall. Hmm. In other words, he dwells in this kind of brokenness, this this wickedness, this terrible fallen world with thorns and everything else. God is there, and yet he's not consuming it. He's not he's not devouring it and and putting it to waste. Right. He's in the midst of the suffering. And it's that's cool because he's not afraid of it. He's not even, you know, the idea of God is holy and can't look on sin in a sense, but there is a sense of entering in and being close and drawing near even into the most kind of painful and vulnerable parts of our story. Yeah. Yeah, and and people, the early church fathers saw this, you know, in the New Testament we're told that the Holy Spirit comes to take up residence in us. Mm -hmm. And there's this weird dynamic to the Christian faith where we are entirely justified in the sight of God. We are declared entirely righteous in the judicial sense in his eyes. There's no blame. There's no condemnation. There's no justice or wrath coming for all of our sins because they've been imputed to Christ. We're innocent and clothed in his righteousness. And yet, for the years that we have left on earth, we still remain sinners. And yet, somehow, by a mystery, the Holy Spirit comes Mm -hmm. and dwells in these fallen vessels that we are, Mm -hmm. though redeemed, and he does not consume us. And there's a mystery that's going on here where God is appearing in the middle of a thorn bush. Like, I mean, of all things, like what... If we were writing the story, we would say God appeared in a sequoia or an oak or <laughs> right. a cypress tree or some Something Lebanon. Grand, yeah. Yeah, like a great tree. And God is humbling himself here. Yeah. I also think, too, of the story of Abraham and when he took Isaac up to be. Was Isaac, right? <laughs> it was Isaac. Thank you. When he took Isaac up to be sacrificed, um, and then God provided a ram for him in a thorn bush. I think how cool for. Moses, I mean, if he's thinking, you know, it has to be similar wording and phrasing that, you know, God appeared um, with provision in that sense of, you know, no, don't sacrifice your son and I'm going to provide a way out for you here in this um, in this thorn bush. And then to see God showing up in the thorn bush, just like that, those images that get stacked on top of one another. Mm-hmm. And in that story, what do you find? You find them going up on a mountain and the ram gets caught in the thorns. Here you find thorns in a mountain. And, and yep. how does how does the story of redemption kind of reach its climax? Yeah. You know, it's going to be the savior of the world. And guess what? Once again, there are going to be thorns on a mountain. And th- that time it's going to be Christ the savior crowned with thorns. So again, here's God coming into the world on a mountain to relate and to to identify with the sufferings and brokenness of his people in the middle of thorns. Like so this is this is prefiguring who our God is. He's not just a God who who lords over us and says, "Okay, now this God of power has come to rescue you and I'm entirely detached from all of your suffering and I'm powerful to, enough to rescue you, but I don't really care what you've been through." Right. No, it's telling you that he very much identifies with us mm-hmm. in the midst of the brokenness. Um which is all that is just fascinating to me. There's so much meaning here and the aseity of God. And then so in one sense it's telling you that he's he's transcendent, you know, he's he's supernatural. He, you know, the bush is not consumed. So he's beyond our ability to understand. And yet at the same time, he's in the middle of a thorn bush. Mm. 
So he's very accessible. He's relatable. He's There's a lot of that going on in this chapter, as we'll see. What's that word you used? Aseity? I've never aseity. heard that word ever. So aseity is like the self-existence of God. How do you he, spell it? Oh, you put me on the spot. <laughs> a, A-S-E-I-T-Y, maybe? Okay. So it means the self, like self. self I'm self-sufficient. Huh. I don't okay. need anything else. I've never heard that one. Yep. Okay. But now that makes me want to Google it to make sure <laughs> that I just spelled it correctly. I picture See, it with a C. A C. See, Will never calls me out on this kind of stuff. It's $5 ah, word. Ah, was correct. You were. A-S-E-I-T-Y. All so right. Gosh. You could Google it. There's Learned all kinds of one. stuff Learned written on that today. one. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So... Verse 3, and Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And so it's like you said, he's not scared of the bush. He just sees it as something that's amazing. It's marvelous. Like he wants to see how is this possible. Um, but it's when he recognizes the word of God, um, when, he's in, when he when he's encounters yeah. the word of God and, and the identity of God when he's revealed, that's when Moses is like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and he becomes very um, humble. I do. I mean, I know I've mentioned it before, but I do love just the winsomeness of God in that. You know, it wasn't like he was just trying to wow him. He was trying, he was drawing him in. He wanted to talk to him. He wanted to have a conversation and just the, the, just the tenderness and kindness of God and drawing Moses to himself in such a, such a neat way. I love that. Yeah. And when we see those moments where, you know, it's like, is God moving in this? I love that God rewards Moses for coming nearer to ask questions. Hmm, yeah. Um, and we do ourselves a, a lot of service when we come across those moments in life where it's like we, we think God's at work or we see something that's that seems a little bit beyond the natural to draw in and really check it out and to inquire of the Lord. And Moses does that. And it says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. So prior to this, you know, it's just a fire, but here comes a fire that speaks. <laughs> and that, that that's going to make Moses, you know, go, whoa. It'll mess up his world a little bit. Right? Like if a fire starts talking to me, uh, you know, it's, uh, Mark used to say, I'm going to start wondering about the burrito I ate last night. <laughs> I just, I don't know. This is just me. I picture the sheep. Like, what are they doing? <laughs> yeah. Just wander away. Yeah. Moses lost the flock. <laughs> we're just, we have much Jethro, more important things happening here. Jethro, you're not going to believe what happened. <laughs> so anyway, so he turns aside to see God called to him out of the bush and he says, Moses, Moses. And we've talked about that before. Uh, but in Eastern cultures, when you repeat somebody's name, mm -hmm. it, it's a sign of affection and urgency. So mm -hmm. you can almost imagine like, the Italian, Laura, Laura, or, you know, something like that was really bad. She's looking, she's looking at me like, what are you doing? What are you talking about? <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, right? Sure. Beetle, beetle. You know, like, there's, there's some perfection to it. And so anyway, <laughs> Moses said, here I am, um, which is like reporting for duty. You see that all throughout the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, it's kind of got that connotation, like, I'm I'm at the ready. Like, what do you need? Yeah. And so then he said, this is God. He says, do not come near, which is hmm. weird. So it's, it's you know, in one sense, you hear that he rewards Moses for drawing near to inquire. It says that. Hmm. Yeah. And then it says, do not come near. Take off, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing 
is holy ground. Hmm. Now, what do you make of that? Why take off your sandals? That's a good question. I mean, there's. it seems like your feet are the dirtiest part of your body. So it's almost opposite what I would expect. It's almost like cover your feet, you know, like the angels do in front of God. Um, but I don't know. I, I really don't know. What is it? Why would he take off his sandals? Why would there be something wrong with shoes? Seems like you would want to have a layer between you and God <laughs> versus... So I've I've heard like a bunch of different explanations on this one. And one of them is, you know, kind of countering what you're saying that you put on sandals to take the brunt of the filth so that your feet can stay insulated. And so your sandals have accumulated all the dirt and filth and, and rocks and everything else. And so God is saying, take those filthy things off so that you can come near to me. Kind of like a barrier. Yeah. Another thing, and I don't know how much this existed back in the ancient days of Moses, but when you came into someone else's house, and this is still true to this day, you know, if they have a really immaculate house and everything is pristine white or whatever, you wouldn't come in there with your sneakers and just walk all over their white carpet. You know, you're you're going to take your sandals off or your your shoes off right. before you go in. So it's kind of a sign of respect. And of, yeah, 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 I think that's right. So and, and but what and I think that is the one I think is most likely. So this is more for God's sake or for Moses's sake that these sandals come off. Yes, <laughs> I I think what God is doing is one. It's a sign that when you come into God's presence, you can't just say, you know, here I am and nothing needs to change. I'm totally worthy of everything you are. Like the Lord beckons Moses to come. And yet as he's coming, he's saying there's something deficient in the way that you are. Hmm. And it requires Moses to recognize that. It's like Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, what he's saying is, like, you've got to recognize your deficiency. You've got to recognize that you are not worthy to just blow into the presence of God and be like, you're lucky to have me and I'm here. Like, God is calling on Moses to recognize there's something radically different about coming into my presence. Hmm. Okay. You need to alter. Something needs to change. Yeah. You need to alter your posture. Something needs to change for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And why is it holy? You know, if if you go into the Sinai or you go into southern Israel, the kind of terrain is the same. It's just rocks and dirt and sand, and it doesn't. It's not very pretty. It's not glory. This is not garden territory. You know, it's it's like it says, desolate and thorny. You know, mm-hmm. what makes it holy? Yeah, the presence of God. Yeah, God is there. Period. That's it. And so you get, you know, in a sense, that means that a temple is anywhere you encounter God. Hmm. Whether it's in a church, in a tabernacle, in the actual temple that Solomon will build, like it doesn't matter. It's wherever you encounter God is holy ground, Hmm, Um, which means, by the way, if you're really, truly understanding the way that things work, you are always standing on holy ground. Do you ever leave holy ground and come back? And your heart, sure. Yeah. There's the, and you know, the, and the moments where you're not considering that this entire earth is the Lord's temple, you know, and the scriptures are very clear on that, that this entire earth is meant to be the temple of God. Hmm. And we are priests that are sent out to bring the earth under the dominion of God right. and in relationship with him. Right. Okay. 
So we got to take off our sandals. We got to change our posture. We've got to come to God with reverence. In verse six, it says, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What strikes you about that? Well, I mean, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I've always paid attention to. I've never, ever seen I am the God of your father, which is an interesting thing. I mean, it kind of ties not just Moses to the ancient history, which would have been 400 plus years ago, but it ties him more specifically to these people that are suffering in Egypt right now are my people, that I am their God. I belong to you, not just to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Never seen that before. You know what? I haven't either. Until you just said that, I've never noticed that. So Moses' dad is named Amram. He's a slave. And he's saying, I am the God of your father. And You're, I almost wondered if i That's great. Is that true, though? Because I'm almost reading it. The way I've read it before is I'm the God of your fathers, as in like the, you know, the, the patriarchs. Um, but it looks singular, right? It is singular in the Hebrew. Okay. So singular father. So interesting. I mean, maybe he's referring to Abraham, but in any case, you know, that's left for Moses to interpret. And if I'm Moses, that's the that's the way I'm going to hear it. But this this is where I think where God is so cool because remember, you know, he's he's showing that he's transcendent and being supernatural in the fire, uh, and yet he's very intimate with Moses. And you see that again here, where he's saying, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! You cannot come near to me as you are." Um, you got to take off your sandals. This place is holy ground, which would have made Moses like, whoa, I, you know, I can't, I can't relate to this God. And then the next thing that God says is, no, 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 you absolutely can. Hmm. I'm the God. Remember Abraham and all the stories that you've heard of how I walked with him and was present with him and did amazing things and kept promises and had relationship. I'm the God of that guy. Yeah. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. Um, and so again, I am a transcendent God who is holy and deserves reverence, and you're not worthy of me, and yet I'm the same God, that transcendent God that drew near to all of your fathers. Mm, yeah. So I'm in the family. I yeah, know you. I am I holy, altogether different, altogether different and transcendent, and yet I'm very near. Mm-hmm. I love that. And so Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. It's like he kind of clued in, like, oh, yeah. I saw this bush, I saw this fire, but now I know what it is, and now I'm terrified. I love that. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know that you ever have an instance in the Bible where you find somebody walking in, in fact, I know you don't, where you find somebody walking into the presence of God like, hey, I'm here, what's yeah. up? What's up, God? You know, like... It's always this, when you have the realization of the presence of God, a hiding, uh, you know, like you recognize how undone you would be hmm. if left without his mercy. You fall woefully short. Um, and so Moses hides his face, just like all the characters hide. Adam and Eve hid, you know, Peter and the apostles fall on their faces. Even John in Revelation after the resurrection is still falling on his face, like there's something about being in the presence of God that is terrifying, and yet he doesn't run away. Yeah, It's like, I'm terrified, but I know I'm safe. I feel like this is just kind of thoughts off the top of my head, but I feel like as we tend to go back and forth as a church in the way that we treat this, you know, we have the sense of awe and reverence that maybe a big cathedral would be, and we, you know, see this God, we need to come into his presence with fear and trembling and the idea of the fear of the Lord and 
And then we have, you know, the other side where it's more, you know, Jesus is my friend and, you know, we are close and Abba Father and all those things are all true at one time. But I think we, I think I, I'll speak for myself, personally have a hard time holding all those things together at the same time, that I can enter the presence of the Lord with fear because of God's holiness and actually put him in his right place rather than just this kind of, I have this access, I have this bold access to the throne. I tend to lean that direction and go, oh, I have this bold access. Let me just run in. Um, Yes, but at the same time, I think I tend to miss that fear, that holiness, that awe, that holy ground sense um, that I think is important. All of it's important. All of it needs to be held together in tension, it feels like. Yeah, and I think we definitely live in the, you know, the Jesus is my homeboy, you know, lack of any fear of God. And I think the church is is marked, um, the capital C church is marked by a I think we fear men far more than we fear God these days, and it it serves to harm the church. And I think, you know, people are looking for something that's otherworldly. We're exhausted by this world. This world is terrible. It's a dumpster fire. It's dark, and a lot of times it's depressing, and there's beautiful elements in it. But this world will wear you out. It will chew you up. It will spit you out. The reason why I think, you know, the reason why I know people come to a church is they're looking for a pipeline to a different world, hmm. a God who's altogether different, a God of beauty, a God of hope, a God of life, a God of resurrection, because in this world, that's what we most need. And when the church says, you know what, we're going to try to be like this world to remain relevant, and we're going to cut the cord with the pipeline that gives us the experience of another world, um, man, we're, we're doing it a disservice to our church. We're doing a disservice to to all the people who come in to serve because what they need most, even if they're not seeking it, they need a word from another world. Yeah. This world is broken, it's fallen, and it will fail them. If they're seeking their hope here or their satisfaction here, it's going to fail them. They need a word from a different world. And that's what God is bringing to Moses here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not a small ask, you know, as we put together church services and you know i know i love i love the way rio balances all of this but you know we're stepping into his presence we're not dumbing down what it is um you want it to be accessible you want it to be Mm -hmm. understandable you want it to be comprehensible you don't want to speak in you know latin (laughs) so nobody understands what's going on but still that ability to walk in and to see god is holy i had i heard a you can cut this out later if you want to but um I read an analogy for um, the kind of the seeker-sensitive church movement, and um, it's kind of a simple analogy, but I liked it. It was the idea of a game of baseball, and if you ever, we went to a Marlins game with our kids this year. We actually went last year when our kid was five, our youngest was five, and the questions that he would ask, because he was just starting to pay attention, you don't realize how complex the game of baseball is until you're trying to explain it to <laughs> somebody else, because you kind of, you grow up watching it, you, you get it, and then you're like, but but there's this and then but only in this case and you know, you're kind of trying to work through all those little details and so this analogy was to the game of baseball that if you dumb down baseball to the point where everybody could understand it on the first time around you miss the beauty and the complexity of the game but if you just play the game and you allow people to fall in and understand it and plumb the depths of the the different complexities, then they will enjoy the game. They will fully get it. They will be bigger fans than if you just had a, you know, a a much simpler thing in the same way with approaching church that we don't 
take what who God is and try to water it down so much that just it doesn't seem holy or distant or other. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, always in balance, always understanding um, that people need help and understanding. But yeah, I still remember to this day um, my first time that I walked into a worship service, and I was at a spot in my life where I was suffering pretty debilitating depression. And I walked into a church, and they were, it was contemporary music. And I remember looking around at the people who had their hands up and, you know, the tears coming down their face. And it was totally different than anything I'd ever experienced in a Catholic church. But they were in, it was obvious to me that they were having a moment, an encounter with the one true God. And I could not tell you anything about the sermons that I <laughs> that I heard back in those days or or even what they said. I'm sure they made an impression and some of that stuck. But the thing, to your point, was watching people genuinely encounter God changed my motives. I, I didn't just want to stop feeling depressed. I became envious of their experience. Mm. I wanted God. I, it, wasn't, it wasn't any more of you know, what am I leaving behind? It's, gosh, I want that with both arms. You know, I really want what these people have. Yeah, that's beautiful. Because they were playing baseball really well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And again, it's not like God's looking down going, oh, yep, there they are. I see them. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's like, I see you. You know, if somebody comes up to you in the, in the middle of your pain or you feel invisible, like nobody notices what you're going through and somebody comes up and says, hey, I see you. Hmm. That's this yeah, big time, big time. And it helps walk in that pain when someone else is with you. And that's what's going on here. I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry. So all those cries of desperation that that they don't hit empty atmosphere. You know, they've come up to the throne of heaven. They've reached my ears. I hear them because of their taskmasters. And then my favorite, I know their sufferings. And again, in Hebrew, the word know communicates something experiential. You know, when, when people have children, it'll say Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived and bore a son. You know, he knows their sufferings. He's he's in it with them. When he sees them suffer, he suffers. So it's not a detached, distant God. And that's that's the tension all throughout Exodus 3 is this balance between a God who's far too big for us mm-hmm. and a God who is suffering right alongside us, yeah. um, which is just incredible. And he says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That seems like a mixed bag, doesn't it? You you thought about it that way? Oh, like he's bringing them to the Canaanites? Yeah, I mean, you have such a big promise. You know, I'm going to bring, I'm going to deliver you, and then I'm going to take you into this land that has all of these people who are you know, opposed to me. Yeah. And it, note, he doesn't say that he's going to conquer them or drive them out here. It's just, yeah, that's interesting. I never noticed that either. You know, you're going to go to the place where they are. And it's also interesting to me, you know, that that promise of a land flowing with milk and honey. Like I've been to Israel huh. and it's not flowing with milk and honey. <laughs> it's It's not. Like there's beautiful parts of it. There's desolate parts of it. There's 
all in between mountains and, and valleys and just fields and like there's they're all over the place. But what he's getting at, God uses so many images and symbols in the way that he communicates to us so that we can understand him a little better. Mm-hmm. And when he says that he's bringing them to a land of milk and honey, the, the reason for that is it's communicating something about the nature of his relationship with them in that land. And milk, when you think of milk, what do you, what do you think of? Nursing mother. And really? Yeah. I mean, where does milk come from? It comes from a nursing mother. Um, well, now it's almonds and soybeans yeah, and all enough. that mess. But anyway, back then it would have been, you know, nursing mother. And so there again, there's some intimacy to it. Like it, you're going to have somebody that's caring for you. And on the other side of that, honey, you know, what do you think of when you hear honey? Well, it's sweet. Sweet. So it's not just like, okay, here you're going to survive. No, there's going to be a sweetness to it. And one of the other attributes that they knew in the ancient world, we know today, honey is the only food naturally that does not spoil. It really never, ever spoils. I mean, if it has, we haven't measured it long enough. (laughs) At least that's the way I've always heard it. I have such a hard time with accepting that. It's awesome. But, you know, that's, that's the reputation of honey anyway, and it has been going back for a long time. And so what's the idea? Again, intimate, milk, mother, you know, there, there's, I'm going to take care of you. Hmm. And milk is something that spoils really quickly. Really quickly. And yet there's going to be a sweetness with honey and it's never spoils. And again, so it's this really nearness, mm-hmm. intimacy, and then the transcendent, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's all over the place. Verse nine, it says, and now behold, the cry of the people Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send, and now Moses (laughs) Moses is now being asked for something. I will send you (laughs) to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Yeah, that's a big, hard, like, screech of the tires right there, isn't it? It's like, what? Why me? Yeah. You can do this. Why do you need me? What are we doing? But I'm, I've got a theory on Moses that will play out over the next couple of episodes. But I think Moses is really um, kind of resentful of God and the faith. Hmm. Okay. I th- and we'll sit like he doesn't circumcise his kids. We'll see that in the next chapter. So that's weird. Right. You know, so at this point, you know, he's had Gershom in the last chapter. He never circumcised Gershom on the eighth day. Why not? Well, yeah. if you remember what happened to him in Egypt, he was like, okay, I'm ready. Let's let's get this deliverance thing going. He stood up. He killed the Egyptian. He was ready for the, the Israelites to follow him and be like, yeah, we've got a deliverer to stand up. And they turned on him. And not only did they turn on him, but one of the things that the text leaves you, how does Pharaoh find out about it? I think they snitched on him. <laughs> And so he's the Israelites snitched the on Israelites snitch because who else saw him? Like the the Hebrews yeah. know that he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand, and Moses freaks out, and then Pharaoh finds out. Well, what's left unsaid? How did Pharaoh find out? Yeah, true. It's kind of so, like Moses's first experience with biting sheep. Yeah, <laughs> right. So I think when Moses went to deliver them, he found out not only did they not accept him, but they turned on him and mm. snitched to Pharaoh, and now they've caused him forty years. Yeah, sure. Out in the wilderness, having lost every privilege that he had, and now he's got Pharaoh who wants him dead. And so I think when God says you're going to go back and free these people, like I, I think that there's a very real sense in which Moses is going. Ugh, Again, like, hey, I stood up 40 years ago. Right. Where were you then, God? Why didn't you cause them to follow then? Yeah. And 
Just let them continue in their slavery. I'm good. I'm out. <laughs> so maybe I'm projecting because that's probably what my sinful, nasty <laughs> heart would do. Um, but I think Moses is really battling with this call. <laughs> and and we're going to see that. Like he is kind of like, no, 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 no. And with a million different reasons trying to backpedal out of this. And I don't think it's just because he's terrified of Pharaoh, though I think that's part of it. Right. Yeah, he had the here I am moment at the very beginning, but that's kind of, that one was fleeting, wasn't it? Yeah. If you're here for me, great. You want me to go get those people? Uh... Yeah. So verse 11, it says, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Which is always the wrong question, right? (laughs) It's not about who you are. Um, And he's going to find that out in a minute. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Like, I've already tried that. I failed. Like, I I don't have what it takes. Hmm. But God says the only thing that we need to hear and what he repeatedly says throughout redemptive history to his deliverers, he says, but I will be with you. Yeah. And that's enough, right? Yeah. That's great commission. Go to the ends of the earth, you know, make disciples of all nations and behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Like Jesus says, you're going to succeed in this mission, of course, but it's not because you're amazing. Right. It's because I will be with you. Right. And so he says, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So he's saying, when you've succeeded, after you've done all the scary stuff, the sign is going to be that you come back to this mountain. And if you're Moses, it's like... That's a leap of faith. uh, Why don't we get the sign now? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Why why don't you perform the sign (laughs) now? That'll be the good I told you so when we get there. We'll have that be the icing on the cake. But can we have a sign now? Absolutely. (laughs) And one of the other weird things is, like, we kind of take it for granted because we've walked in faith a long time. But, like, God, why don't you just go do it yourself? Absolutely. Like, you can talk through a bush. Why don't you go talk to Pharaoh? Mm -hmm. Why don't you just unleash the plagues? Why do you want a mediator? And that's going to be the hallmark of this is God always uses mediators and bringing salvation to others. It's why we go and preach the good Mm -hmm. news. It's why... You know, the prophets came. It's why always he calls out apostles to go out in his name and says, you're going to do greater things than I ever did. Like God loves to make us, he makes us in his image, right? And so that means that he delights in the fact that we get to partake in bringing about creation and redemption. Hmm. And we play a role in that, though it's all by his power. And we are often unwilling and unskilled and unsure the whole time. Yeah, so it's it's like, you know, God says in Genesis 3, he's going to crush the head of the snake, right? That the Messiah is going to come to crush the head of the snake. And then in Romans 16, it says the church does it. Hmm. And so it's like God allows us to participate in his victory, yeah. though it's all by his power. Yeah. And that's what he's doing here. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, famous and it's brilliant and it's super profound. God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And so again, here you have God who is coupling these two ideas. When he says, I am that I am, that is an outrageously profound statement that we read right past. But what God is saying is, 
I can't give you a name or a category by which you can understand me. The only thing that you can measure me against is myself because you don't have categories for me. I, I just am. Like you, you can't say, you know, I'm, my name can't be I'm loving or I'm just because that's an aspect of me, but I'm so much more than that. I am so other. There's so many properties and traits of who I am that you can't wrap your brain around. You don't have categories for. And so I just, I am. I am the standard by which I define myself. That's right. Yeah. That's it. And and beyond that, like in the ancient world, especially when you get to the period of the Greeks, they had these categories of, you know, being and becoming. And so things that, like the forms, the the great things, like the the, perf- the perfect were always being. You couldn't improve upon them, Right. Like they're they're as good as they're going to get because they're absolutely perfect to the way they are. There's going to be no more changes to them because they've reached perfection. And so the Greeks always viewed divinity as being like God is, is perfect. Like he can't become better. He's not changing. He's not striving for anything. He's already arrived. He's perfect. And yet all of creation, we're becoming something. We're Mm, always changing. We change our mind. We change our opinions. We change as we age. We change our clothes. We change all the time. We're constantly moving and convulsing and societies are constantly in flux. And it's like God is saying, I'm the one unchanging thing in this universe you will find. Mm -hmm. I am. I always was. I am. I will always be. There's no changing in me. Mm, Love that. I also love that Moses is finally asking the right question. You know, he starts with, who am I? And now it's like he's switching to, okay, so I'm going to go, and who are you? Because that's what God has given him as the reason that he can do this is because I'm with you. Okay, so who are you? Which is pushing Moses into the right direction of submission to what God's calling him to do here. Yeah. I So it's not just... I am who I am, which in English, it it's almost sounds like you're just flipping. I am who I am. But it's so profound. And what mm-hmm. it means is you don't have categories for me, which going back to what we've been talking about again and again, it means if you don't have categories for me, it means I'm transcendent, I'm altogether holy, and some sense I'm unapproachable. Mm-hmm. And then what does he say? But make sure you tell him this too. I'm the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham. I want them to know that I'm entirely approachable as I was for them too. And so once again, transcendent and eminent, together linked together. And he says, this is my name forever. Hmm. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Yeah, It's like he's making a promise to not just be their God, but to continue on in covenant with them too, right? Yeah, it's good. There's something really comforting in knowing that your God never changes, you know, because God has great reason to be angry with me, <laughs> you know? Mm, yeah. Like, he calls me, he purchases me on the cross, he he pours himself out for me, and there's a million ways where I fall short, where I betray him, and yet, like, there's, I don't have that moment where I feel that God is going to forsake his promise or suddenly change or or move the deal to where he says, you know what? Like, I'm done. I, you know, this whole covenant of grace, like, I've grown tired of it. I'm changing. Right. Like, there's, we take for granted how wonderful it is that he is the same mm-hmm. yesterday, today, and forever. And he will never, ever change. Never. And he will never forsake us. Like, mm-hmm. there's, you don't get to say never and always very often, huh. but in God's 
cases, his nevers remain nevers, and his always remain always. Always. <laughs> so that's his name forever. And so he says, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, um, which is interesting because, again, that's Yahweh when, when you find the Lord there. This makes it sound like Israel had never heard the name Yahweh before. Mm -hmm. The people of God had never. But in Genesis, you find Yahweh repeatedly happening throughout his interactions with the patriarchs. So that name exists in Genesis. And there's some people who say, well, that name was just, you know, the, that Moses added it backward like because he's he knew. about God. Now but I, I don't believe that. Even the name, Moses' mother's name is Jacobed. <laughs> and that name literally means like the Lord is glory, but hmm. the name Yahweh, whenever you find in an ancient, like they just shortened it to Yah. And so it's Yah Chaved, which is glory. Yahweh is glory. Hmm. And so even in his mother's name, you find the abbreviated form of Yahweh in her name. And so there's some generational memory going on there. When... Um God comes to like Jacob mm -hmm. after the ladder thing with the angels going up and down. He says, I am the Lord, the God of your father. Doesn't he say something along those lines? He like, does. So Yahweh, the, the name Yahweh is used 168 times in Genesis. I love that you know that number. Where'd that come from? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just read a study right before this. Yes, so I, I would have forgotten. <laughs> so, but anyway, 168 times. So this is not brand new to us. It's not like you get to Exodus 3 and like, oh, I've never heard Yahweh before. No, it's all over the place. So this is just the first time where they've had a conversation about his name mm -hmm. in scripture, like where they're, That's his where name. we've landed on the name, where we've said, what is your name? This is my name. Correct. There's no other time in Genesis where a character asks God what his name is. I don't think so. Like he's called... He's just announces himself. Yeah, most of the other times when he has a name, it's L something. Right. Which is, you know, just God generally. You are the God who sees me. You are yeah. the this, you are the yeah. that, all that kind of stuff. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lots of cases where you find Yahweh mentioned. But, for example, when Jacob has his dream uh, of the ladder going up into heaven, when you find the Lord who stands above the ladder, he says, I am the Lord, and that is literally Yahweh. And so Jacob would have heard the name of the Lord. Abraham, Isaac would have heard the name of the Lord. But there's some sense in which Moses is like, it's been so long since mm -hmm. I've had any interaction with you. I've never had a personal interaction with you, God, even though, you know, I've got a miraculous life of being spared from death at birth and your hand is all over my life. I've never heard from you. And I'm 80 years old now. Like, wow, who are right. you? Yeah. Who are you? And so when he says, I'm Yahweh, remember, I'm the same God that spoke to your fathers. Mm -hmm. It's it's like I'm here on the scene. Hmm. I've come. I've come down. That's right. All right. Verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness 
that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And so out of the gates, the negotiations are pretty low. He just, it's not, hey, let my people go forever and free them from their slavery. What he wants Moses to start with is just a request for a three days journey into the wilderness that they might sacrifice to the Lord our God. Hmm. And do you think that Moses heard that as we're going to play a trick on them and you're going to run away? Or does he really, you think he's really only asking for that at the moment? I think he is, God's not a, he doesn't, he's not a trickster with his words. So he makes a promise, I think he keeps it. So I think this is probably going to be a starting point. Um, but I think what would have happened, I mean, we're trying to climb into the mind of God. Like, I think what he's saying is, I want my people to hear from me. I want them to find their identity in me. I want them to experience me mm-hmm. um, and to sacrifice to me, even in the middle of their sufferings. Like, he's coming to people that could have otherwise said, God has forsaken us. We've been in this country for centuries, and he has not delivered us. And now he's coming to Pharaoh making a request that they be liberated for a short time, Mm -hmm. and he's making a request to them that even in the midst of their suffering, they still should be sacrificing. Yeah. This is not an easy thing he's requesting of either party. Sure. And it's a lot of people to move in that direction and to have a a pull-away time. Yeah. So in this, but I want you to notice, like, the ask is not just of Pharaoh. You know, he's saying, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna let you, I want three days journey. But the ask is of all of these people that have been heartbroken and oppressed for centuries, that for years have been crying out to God, and he's coming and saying, I want you to sacrifice to me. Mm, yeah. Like, there would have been a lot of heartache, I'm sure, to say, I don't know that I can. Yeah, I want to restore my relationship with you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that's where he wants to start. But then at the same time, listen to the next verse, because he knows that's not going to happen. And by the way, just real quick, the three days journey into the wilderness is really interesting, because Mm -hmm. when you get to the Exodus and the lamb's blood, the lamb is slain and the blood is placed on the doorpost, and then they get going. Right. How long does it take to get out of Egypt? Three three days, days right? A three days journey to get out of Egypt, out of that Mm -hmm. territory. And so there's there's a nod toward the resurrection going on there. Hmm. Um, so it's the Lamb is slain, and three days later, yeah. they're out of the land of death and bondage, yeah. which is pointing you to the resurrection. And interestingly, when they cross the Red Sea, it's on the Hebrew calendar. It's Nisan 17. Right. Guess what that is? That is the day of Jesus' resurrection. Wow. So not a small thing. Three days' journey is going to be a good clue that the exodus is pointing to what Jesus will ultimately do in a far greater exodus out of death and bondage. Right. Okay. So verse 19, it says, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Hmm. Well, it just so happens that I have one. Right. (laughs) I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, After all the wonders pass, after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So I don't want you to to fear that this is going to crush the Egyptians and make them forever enemies toward you. No, they're going to be so angry at Pharaoh and so sympathetic toward you that they're actually going to favor you over him. Hmm. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, and you shall plunder the Egyptians. That's cool. 
it kind of answers a question that was forming in my mind too of, you know, what we said, why does God just not come set his people free? You know, he could do this. It's almost like he has to go through this process with the people where we're going to ask for three days and then he's going to say no. And then we're going to ask for three days and he's going to say no. We're going to say, let my people go. He's going to say no. We're going to do the plagues. (laughs) We're going to go through this, you know, process versus just snap your fingers and everybody walks out. Um, But not to get too far ahead, I'm sure you'll go into this, but the idea that this process of deliverance, the fact that it took time, probably changed the hearts of God's people towards what they were in. They Mm -hmm. saw the hardness of Pharaoh where maybe they had only seen it through the taskmasters, and now they were seeing that he was never going to you know, let them go in any way, not even just to go out of the wilderness, out to the wilderness to worship. And the idea that the Egyptians would then be favorably disposed to them, which if they just up and disappeared, you know, there could be a lot more trauma to the whole, um, the whole system. But um, just interesting that God so, so masterfully works all this out, not just for the short term gain, but also for the long term gain of um, their ability to get behind this plan, possibly. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, you know, God has to, I think he, he's softening a lot of the Hebrews' hearts, but and and doing this in this kind of way, he's also softening a lot of the Egyptians' hearts. Yeah. And he's going to do a contest that the Egyptians and their neighbors, the Nubians, are going to see. And a lot of those people are going to come out with the Israelites into the covenant people of God, which, you know, which people rarely talk about. But that actually happens, and none of that happens without God kind of allowing this thing to drag out and with Pharaoh's heart being hardened. And there's a reason why, you know, the Egyptians are favorably disposed to the Israelites, which means they're probably also softened to Yahweh. Hmm. And they see that the Egyptian gods have all failed, and the Egyptian Pharaoh has failed. And so he gives favor to his people by this drawn-out process. And, And you see that. In the way that God works, it's like, you know, God doesn't cause evil or suffering. He allows it because he's sovereign over all things, but he never wastes it. Yeah. He never wastes it. Like, he's going to use the years of suffering and and all of that. Like, I mean, look at, look at our own stories. I can look back at my life and see all of the suffering, and most of it was from my stupidity. And things that I'd done, some of it wasn't. Some of it was it felt unfair, and it just felt like you know misery for the sake of misery. And yet, without that, God used all that to kind of massage my heart and to to patiently escort me to a place where I recognized actually, at the end of things, there was a mercy to it, even though I wouldn't have called it mercy in those days. God used that hardship to help me see that he alone yeah. was what could satisfy me. You know, when he was stripping all of the the idols away from me, that was painful. I didn't like it. It felt cruel, and I was angry with God, you know, in the sense that I could be back then. But now, having seen what the stripping away of those idols has done, you know, I it's given me him. In fact, we wouldn't be married had those idols not be stripped away. I never would have gone into ministry. I never would have had the life or the children that I have now. And so so God allowed a lot of that suffering over an extended period of time. You know, and he's not up there going, ha ha, suffer, Sam, mm-hmm. you know. But he knows in the end that I wouldn't trade any of it for the world. And it was necessary for my heart to soften right. and to see that he's the one moving and right. sovereign and good. Um, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah. 
hard thing to hear when you're in the middle of it. Oh, for yeah. sure. Big time. But I think that that represents probably everybody's experience, you know, that at some point you look back and you go, wouldn't do it again, wouldn't ask for that, wouldn't plan it. But I do see that God's hand was on that and he is um, doing something. Um, And, you know, and then hold on by faith in the times when you are in the middle of it and you don't see it and you're like, nope, this is not good. And nothing about this is good. Nothing will be good. I don't like it at all. Um, How God is so faithful to descend and to come and to be in the midst of that and to mm-hmm. gently draw us out, even though it doesn't feel gentle. I'm sure it didn't feel gentle to the Israelites, but in over the big scheme of things, you know, God is very patiently working with his people and moving them along. And, you know, to close to close us out today, God always plunders the enemy for the sake of his people. You know, if you remember when Abraham and Sarah went to Egypt um, and Sarah was taken into his harem. When they left Egypt, they left with a mighty plunder of Pharaoh. And here in this story, God is promising you're going to leave with a mighty plunder of things. When they left Babylon, you know, or, or Persia, you know, it was the kings of Persia that funded the reconstruction of the temple because he was favorably disposed to the Israelites. And in some sense, God plundered the riches of Persia. And what does Jesus do when he goes to the cross? It's not just that he pays our debts. It's like in a very real sense when he dies, you know, there's this this imagery and, and, and a lot of the symbolism where it's Jesus going to the very depths of hell to plunder what is Satan's in the realm of sin and death. It's like he plunders the riches of the broken world to give to his people. Mm-hmm. And that means that all everything that's being stored up here in a broken and fallen world, God will eventually plunder and give to his people. It's the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, the wicked are striving and striving and striving to to build all this stuff. And in the end, God says, you know what? It's not for the powerful and the hungry and the wicked and the proud. It's going to be the meek who inherit the earth. It's the poor in spirit who will receive the kingdom of God. Like, there's a plundering to be done. And so your suffering is never, ever in vain. But it's it's like an investment. And the investment is, you know, not going to be cashed hmm. until the day of glory, perhaps even. But there is a plunder to come. You will receive a mighty reward, no matter the levels of your suffering, if they're invested in Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a beautiful promise. It is. And so that is Exodus 3. I hope you enjoyed your time with us. And thank you so much, Laura, for joining and stepping in for Will. My pleasure. Come back, Will. <laughs> <laughs> and we will see you next week as we jump into Exodus 4. Have a great week. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.